0: Hello and welcome. My name is Raj Basaud. I'm a consultant psychiatrist working in private practice in Harley Street and I'm delighted to be joined now by Claire Greaves. She's a 22-year-old young woman who's had a lot of experiences with the mental health services system here in the United Kingdom. So Claire, let's go back right to the beginning of when it all started and you were at primary school and your dad developed quite a severe disorder that was linked to do with with eating and this affected your attitude to eating. Tell us a bit about what happened.
1: Um. Yeah well I saw my dad unwell and I saw that food was making him unwell and I became worried that food would make me unwell so I started to avoid food and become anxious around food and worried that it would make me ill um, and that's where the anxieties with food began.
0: And also you were a bit of a perfectionist and you didn't like getting questions wrong and this seemed to lead to quite a severe reaction tell us about what happened there as well and
1: um, if I got a question wrong at school I would get quite upset and it lead to self-harming behaviors so I'd be in the toilets, like banging my head against the wall I used to get quite distressed if I got anything wrong
0: and you spent most of your life um, at secondary school kind of throwing away food and, and hiding your self-harm tell us a bit about how things got a bit worse at school
1: I think um, My relationship with food became about coping with issues as I grew up and bad things happened to me and just general teenage stuff as well. Food became like my coping strategy and my control, so I would throw the food away or I would self-harm and it was like, it was almost punishment or coping with things and it just became about different things then.
0: Then you became quite anorexic and you were surviving only on a diet coke a day, is that right?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's right.
0: And basically you woke up one Saturday morning, overwhelmed by sadness and self-hatred, unable to speak to your family, um, and you kind of just um, wanted to be dead. Tell us a bit about what that was like.
1: Yeah, I woke up one day and I just couldn't stand myself. I didn't want to be in my body. I felt disgusted by the way I looked and who I was and my body image was just horrific and I just felt like there was no other option than to die because things just felt so bad.
0: Um, I think then you took an overdose, so is that um, the first time you ended up in a hospital?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's right.
0: Tell us a bit about what happened there, the overdose and and how you connected with mental health services?
1: Um, Well I'd been unwell for a while leading up to it and um, I had to leave my dance college and I didn't deal with that very well at all so my anorexia got a lot worse and I was a low weight and I took an overdose because I didn't, I didn't know what else to do and I'd been to my GP like the same week and he hadn't put a referral into any services, he'd said see you in a month and I didn't know that I could last a month and so um, I took the overdose and ended up in the hospital.
0: But how did you end up in the hospital?
1: Um, my friend at the time knew that things weren't okay, and she texted me and become concerned, and she came to visit me, and she could tell that I'd taken something, so she drove me up to the hospital.
0: It's interesting, because there's a pattern that's going to develop, and it starts here, where people who aren't professionals or clinicians seem to be the ones that appear most helpful um, throughout your story. And this is the beginning of it, in a way. It was a non-clinician that intervened.
1: Yeah, that's right, yeah.
0: Um, So you ended up in hospital and what happened then?
1: Um, I was treated for my physical health problems and I was assessed by um, CAMS, and then sent home and I had to wait for the referral to go through to the eating disorder service.
0: But that took a long time, there was some administrative problem at that stage.
1: Uh, Yeah that's right, it took a while.
0: But it took a long while, Uh, there were many months waiting, was that right for a referral?
1: Um, yeah, I was left waiting in many months.
0: Um how much were you weighing at this stage?
1: Um, I think I was around five
0: five stone nine. Okay, right. But but there were other aspects of the anorexia. You got into you, you developed a laxative addiction and you got into binge eating. Tell us a bit more about how this was showing itself, this severe anorexia.
1: Um Well, once I had hit quite a low weight, I did see one eating disorder service, and the funding got cut. So I had to stop my treatment with them and go on a waiting list for another one, which took 18 months. And my anorexia, I tried to recover from it on my own, but it turned into binge eating, and then the binge eating turned into laxatives, and I was caught up in this cycle where I was binging, I was like fasting, I was taking 20 laxatives a day and yeah everything was about my eating disorder every waking hour was eating disorder.
0: You then got very depressed and at this stage you get admitted to a psychiatric ward. Tell us a bit about that and what the ward was like.
1: Um, The ward was like, it was quite scary to be on it was quite far from my home and I had to share a room which isn't like when you're feeling so bad it can be quite hard to share a room with a stranger um,
0: okay and tell us a bit more about what happened because at this stage is about the time you get sectioned under the middle of that for the first time
1: Um. yes yeah, so I left the ward because I became scared I was going to gain weight on the ward as they were encouraging me to eat like cheese sandwiches and so I made out I was fine and I went back home and um, then it must have been probably like six days later um, my college became concerned because I was back in education then and they became concerned that I was still unwell and then um, they called the police and I was detained in section 136.
0: Okay. Um you mentioned cams earlier cams are child and adolescent mental health services then you mentioned the section 136 this is a section of the mental health act where a policeman who finds a person in a place that the public have access to like on the street can place someone under a temporary section of the mental health act could you tell us a bit about what actually happened there with the police
1: and um, well it was college policy to call the police if they were worried that someone was suicidal so the police arrived, and they asked if I was willing to go into hospital, and I said yes, I was, and they weren't going to detain me under Section 136, they were just going to sort out me going back into hospital, but the hospital wouldn't allow it to go that way, so they were left with no choice but, detain- to, but to detain me under Section 136. And um, they tried to find like a place of safety, like a Section 136 suite, but there weren't any available, um, so they were left with no choice but to take me to a cell.
0: This is a police cell in a police station?
1: Uh, yeah, that's right.
0: So you ended up there despite the fact you hadn't broken the law um, simply because there were no beds in the mental health system. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's right.
0: So what was it like being in a police cell? I mean, how old were you at this stage?
1: Um, I was 19 at this point.
0: Okay, you'd never been in a police station before I imagine.
1: No, nope. I had never stepped foot in a police station, it was absolutely okay. terrifying.
0: Okay, tell us a bit more about what happened.
1: Um, So I was taken in the entrance that you would be taken in if you had committed a crime. Um, I was taken up to the desk and I was so scared that I would do something wrong because there were signs everywhere like saying don't step over the sign and I was so scared of doing something wrong. Um, And they ordered a strip search so I was strip searched in a cell Um, It was a Friday night as well so it was loud, there were people shouting, people kicking off, people getting restrained, Um, yeah, it wasn't like the right place to be in when you're so distressed.
0: And what kind of distress had you been in before the Section 136?
1: Um, I was very low in mood, um, struggling with depression a lot, I felt very suicidal and that day I had actually binged and taken 40 laxatives, so I was physically not well either.
0: Right, so really uh, you should have been in, in a place where you could have been looked after medically, but you ended up in a police cell because there were no mental health beds. Tell us a bit more about what happened in that cell, how long were you there for and, and what happened to get you out of there?
1: Um, I was in the cell for 10 hours and then a doctor came to assess me Um, and we decided that I would go back into hospital as a voluntary patient.
0: And is that what happened?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's right, that's what happened. Okay, and how
0: long were you in the hospital for and what was that like?
1: Um, I was in hospital for three weeks. Um, It wasn't particularly helpful because (coughs) there was still no aftercare, like I needed a lot of support when I got home. and also the staff didn't have time to work with the patients as much as some of the patients needed help and there wasn't an OT so there were no activities to do on the ward it was a lot of just like sitting on your bed and waiting around it wasn't particularly helpful
0: What was it like in terms of the other people who were there, the other clients or patients or users of mental health services that were there?
1: Um. Everyone was, like, I wasn't scared to be around people, people were fine, but it was kind of a lot like other patients were supporting other patients because the staff didn't have the time, so you would find that patients would be talking to you about their problems and it was a bit uncomfortable in that way.
0: Did you ever feel threatened? No. No. And what about relatives or friends visiting you? What was that like? Was, was that allowed?
1: Um, it was allowed but because it was quite far away from where I lived I didn't have many visitors. I think I had one friend come and see me and my parents come to see me and that was it.
0: How far away was it from where you live?
1: Um, it was about a 45 minute drive.
0: And again, was that partly because of the problem to do with beds? They were trying to find a bed for you somewhere?
1: Um, no, that's just to do with funding, because we lived on the border of the county, so we had to travel quite far for any hospital.
0: Okay, so you managed to get out of there eventually, is that right?
1: Uh, yeah, that's right.
0: Okay, how long were you in there for?
1: Um, Three weeks.
0: And then what happened in terms of treatment?
1: Um, well, I was sent home with um a care coordinator to support me. But unfortunately, she went on sick leave, so I didn't see anyone for about two months after I come out of hospital, so I was dealing with it all on my own again. Okay, and what was that like? It was really hard because I did want to get better and I wanted to stay positive, but it can be very hard to be that unwell and to not have anybody that you feel you can talk to or... To guide you in terms of like medication and treatment, I didn't have anyone I could go to.
0: So there was no one at all that was following you up, despite the fact you've been under a section in the past and also had been admitted to a psychiatric hospital.
1: Yeah, nobody followed me up.
0: So then, what happened? You got you, you lost more and more weight. I take it.
1: Yeah, um, I kind of battled for a couple of years, like losing weight, gaining weight on my own, and then things kind of um, got to a really low point one year where I took quite a big overdose and then I ended up on a section 136 again.
0: And what was the mechanism by which that happened? How did you make contact with the police? How did anyone find out you'd taken an overdose?
1: Um, Well, I'd been in bed for a month because I was so low in mood that I just didn't want to do anything, didn't want to see anyone. And I left the house and I went out. And um, I'd gone missing, like, my mum didn't know where I was, people didn't know where I was, I was not an answering my phone. So my mum twigged that something had happened. So my mum phoned the police, and the police were searching for me and they found me.
0: How did they find you?
1: Um, I'm not actually sure. Um, They were just searching areas that they thought, I might be in in the local town.
0: Okay, and where were you?
1: Um, I was in some public toilets.
0: What were you doing there?
1: Um, I'd taken an overdose and I was um, like semi-conscious at the time. I'd been like in and out of consciousness.
0: This sounds like a very, very low moment, a very dark moment. I, I also understand that you've been trying to take your life several times around this time. Is that right? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's right. I just didn't know what else to do. I didn't feel like there was any help out there for me. I didn't think that my eating disorder could get better and I couldn't handle it. And I didn't know how I was going to live my life when my eating disorder was taken up every single moment. So it felt like my only option was to end my life, to end my eating disorder.
0: So you get admitted to another psychiatric hospital at this stage, is that right?
1: Uh, yeah, that's right.
0: And again, you got placed this time though under a section two of the mental health act, which is like a twenty-eight day section. Is that right?
1: Um, no. This time was voluntary. This was my last voluntary admission. Um, but I okay. was t- I was um taken to a hospital in a different county, and then I was taken to my local hospital a few days later. And they told me that they needed my bed, and I was asked to leave. Um, so I didn't get any treatment, even though I was in hospital about a week, I didn't really get any help. Um, so I battled on my own, and then I moved to Wales, and that was when my major relapse happened that I ended up in a section two.
0: And what do you, what's the administrative element of that? What do you remember of that? Were forms being filled out? Who interviewed you? What was the, the procedure by which you were placed under this section? I think well, this was a section two of the mental health hours, a 28-day section.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I was on the ward as a voluntary patient, um, like, for one night, and I was very unwell. I was quite psychotic. I was um, very underweight. I didn't engage in the help, and I was trying to leave the ward, and they didn't have any other choice but to section me under... I think it's a Section Five, the nurses' section. Right. And then they arranged for um, a Mental Health Act assessment to take place. So it was like doctors and social workers um, came to assess my state of mind, and um, right. they decided to detain me under a Section Two.
0: What did that feel like when you were told that was happening?
1: Um, I think. At the time, I was too unwell to really have an opinion on it. I didn't I didn't really let it bother me because I just wanted to die and I thought that it didn't matter where I was, that I could do it on the ward and that would be fine. And that was my attitude because I was very unwell. It didn't bother me.
0: Right. When they were assessing you, what sort of questions did they ask you? Can you remember?
1: Um... I'm not sure. I think it was um, about like how suicidal I felt, and if I had any plans, and if I felt safe to go home. I think it was those um, sort of questions.
0: Were you answering those questions truthfully?
1: I can't remember, to be honest.
0: Do you think you could have tricked them into letting you go?
1: I think. I think you. I probably could have but I think they can tell as well not just by what you're saying but by your behaviour as well as the words that are coming out of your mouth
0: what was the treatment you na- you then got on the ward
1: um they arranged for a dietitian to come and see me and an eating disorder specialist to come and see me um yeah I saw like various people who were inputted in they came up with a plan um, to gain the weight in hospital and change the meds to make my mood better. And they came up with a good after-care package as well.
0: And so how long were you in hospital on, on this occasion?
1: Um, I was in for two months.
0: It sounds like this is the first time you start to get proper treatment. Would you agree with that, or what's your view?
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. And I think that... If I would have been voluntary for that whole admission, I don't know as I would have got that help, which is quite worrying
0: so there's something about being sectioned under the Mental Health Act, which seems to ensure that you actually get help. Is that right? Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I feel like professionals took it seriously once I was sectioned because they they almost they had to they had to provide some care package and tell my family that they had a care package, whereas as a voluntary patient I always felt like they were trying to discharge me rather than treat me.
0: So really, I mean, if I can put it this way, you must correct me if I'm wrong, you had, you know, almost a decade really of getting iller and iller and without really getting any proper help, despite the fact the signs were there for anyone to see that you were all well, but it takes this incident you know, a series almost of suicide attempts and being placed under the section of the Mental Health Act before you really get help for the first time.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Do you think the help was good help or could you improve it yourself if you thought it... Do you have any other thoughts about how the help could have been
1: improved? I think it was very good help, but... Um, the aftercare package didn't include a crisis plan which I think is probably key in like mental health care but also I was threatened with if I didn't improve I would have been tube fed and then sent to a secure unit and that threat pushed me into recovery but then I felt like I had to be perfect about it so if I did struggle I didn't feel like I could tell them that I was struggling so I kind of pretended that I was doing better than I was some days as well.
0: Okay, um, but then um, you began to, although you were now an outpatient, you began to get unwell again, is that right? This takes us to about the end of last year, 2014?
1: Yeah, that's right. So I was discharged and I did well for a few weeks. um, But I relapsed with my eating and I was on quite a lot of medication and I struggled with the side effects of the medication, and particularly as I wasn't eating enough, the sickness got quite bad, so I stopped taking the medication, and then it was just a downhill spiral back to, almost back to where I began.
0: Were you being followed up as an outpatient, though? Was anyone keeping an eye on you?
1: Yeah, I had um, I had quite a good um, treatment team around me, but when I was saying, oh, I'm struggling to take my medications and I'm worrying about it, they didn't offer practical solutions they were just like well when you manage to eat more it won't feel like that and that became quite difficult because I was struggling to eat more and I was struggling with the meds and I didn't really know what to do.
0: So you got worse and worse and then what happened?
1: Um, I, was, I was contacting the crisis team um, and they weren't particularly helpful they were saying I'll just call the police and I didn't want to call the police I wanted to speak to mental health professionals because I felt like if I worked with them we could probably come up with a plan but if I called the police then I'm going to be sat waiting for an assessment with police officers and that wasn't the right route for me so they offered me um, an urgent appointment with the ward manager from there because the inpatient and outpatient are joined um and the ward manager wasn't particularly helpful so he gave me some meds and sent me home and then told me to come back in the morning and when i went back in the morning i was really upset and i felt really suicidal and um i was sat in the room crying and he was saying to me um like home treatment need the room so could i please leave um so i left the room and i went into the toilets to try and compose myself and he came into toilets and he told me that um, I need to leave because they need both cubicles um so I felt quite let down by mental health services, and I felt like I was a waste of time and a waste of space um so I went down to the train station and I ended up on another section one three six.
0: What were you doing at the train station were you was this another um suicide attempt
1: um, I was quite distressed, but I think I've learned along the way how much some of the things I do upsets my family, um, so I approached one of the police officers and I said that I didn't feel safe, and then they detained me.
0: Okay, so then what happened, you ended up back in a police cell?
1: Uh, no, I didn't end up in a cell this time, they took me to a hospital, and I waited for an assessment.
0: Were you admitted again?
1: Uh, yeah, they asked me if I would go in as a voluntary patient, and I agreed. Um, but I was discharged a few days later and just this was like just before Christmas so on New Year's Eve things reached a real low point and I just felt like if I was going to die I had to do it that night and I just became convinced that it had to be that night Um, and they asked me to go into hospital and I refused and I was detained in a section two again.
0: Tell us a bit more about that detention because it sounds like that was quite a distressing moment as well.
1: Yeah, um, so I'd spoken to home treatment team and they'd asked me to go down for an assessment and I wasn't going to go down because I didn't want to go into hospital but I felt scared about what would happen if I didn't turn up. So I turned up to this assessment and I was really really low, really wanting to hurt myself and end my life. And they said that they were going to detain me under a Section 2. And I actually ran out of the building.
0: And, and what happened then?
1: Um, The police were called and they came and found me. And they found me probably like one to two hours later. And then they took me back to the ward.
0: And so then you got admitted again to the ward?
1: Uh, yeah, that's right. So I was on the ward for two or three weeks, um, and it it did help, like, um, I think I just needed a little bit of support to sort my eating out, sort my meds out, and yeah.
0: So did you get proper help then, and have you had proper help since then in terms of follow-up when you got discharged?
1: Yeah, um, when I got discharged they gave me more of a, a solid treatment package, so I'm seeing the same people I've seen before but I'm seeing them more regularly so there's always like I always have at least two appointments a week with people so there's a lot of support around me now.
0: Why do you think that is? Why do you think you've been on this journey where you're only now getting the right help whereas you weren't for so many years before?
1: I think the services are quite pushed for money and for the time that they have so I think that they do try and get away with the minimum that they can do because they are so pushed. They're pushed for beds, they're pushed for staff. So I think it took for those sections to happen for them to realise that actually I am quite unwell and I do need a lot of support.
0: What about this thing about being detained against your will in hospital? It's happened several times to you. Um, It's one of those really scary things that people hear about. And it makes people really frightened of going to see a psychiatrist in the first place because they are worried about being sectioned under the Mental Health Act, being involuntarily committed to hospital. What are your thoughts about that process?
1: Um, I think it is really scary to be detained and I have felt quite ashamed of it and it's made me it's knocked my confidence a bit in social situations I used to feel like I was less worthy than everyone else because I'd had this stuff happen to me but I think it is rarer than people think it is to be detained like if you go to see a psychiatrist that's like a psychiatrist can't just detain you you have to go through a mental health act assessment and I don't think people are always clear on that process. I think they think that people can just say, I'm going to section you and then you're sectioned, but it doesn't happen like that.
0: Tell us a bit more about the process from your standpoint. So what is that process? If a psychiatrist can't just section what actually has to happen?
1: Um, well, in my experience, it's been that a professional has become worried about me. So if we think back to like the detention last August, um, the home treatment team became worried about me, um, so they assess, they um, they set up a mental health act assessment. But that assessment is with people that have never met you; it's like a blank slate. Um, so they're not people that know you from day to day. If that makes sense.
0: That's meant to be some kind of legal protection. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's a good idea? What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it is a good idea because how I was five years ago is going to be very different to how I am now and I wouldn't want the person who's got that choice whether they detain me or not to be looking at how I was five years ago because things can change, things can get worse and things can get better.
0: So the process involves two doctors and a social worker at the very least being involved in assessing you and they ask you lots of questions. Is that your experience?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's my experience.
0: Do you think you could trick them if you didn't want to be detained? Do you think you could trick them by saying, giving the right kind of answers and therefore escaping section of the Mental Health Act?
1: Um, I think you could, but I think they don't just assess what you're talking about. They assess how you're behaving as well, because a Mental Health Act assessment doesn't come out of the blue. It's there because somebody's concerned. So if you sit there and you say, oh, yeah, I'm fine, I'm safe, I'm not sure that they would buy into that if you behaved in certain ways or your body language was a certain way.
0: People are also very afraid, and this is a recurrent theme in a lot of Hollywood movies, that a sane person, someone who is is not unwell psychiatrically, can get sectioned for various reasons. It's quite easy to get sectioned. Do you think that's possible, that someone who's really very well, has no mental health problems at all, could get sectioned under the Mental Health Act, from your experience?
1: Um, I suppose there's a chance, but I think it can be quite hard for unwell people to get help, or to get even under the radar that they're not okay. So I don't think it would be something that would be quite common to happen.
0: So do you think it's a good thing, as I think called the Mental Health Act, that when people become seriously unwell and lose insight and, and um, don't look after themselves, or don't have the capacity to look after themselves, that the state intervenes and doctors and social workers can deprive people of their freedom temporarily? Uh, under the Mental Health Act? Do you think that's a good thing that there, that there isn't legislation of that description on the statute books?
1: I do think it's a good thing because I think without it last year I could have potentially died and now I realise that life is a lot different. I feel very different about my life. I want to live it and I'm excited to live it and I didn't feel like that before but I, I do now and people can appeal if you think you've been sectioned wrongly you've got the chance to appeal against it.
0: A lot of people will be very surprised to hear you say that you think it's a good thing there's such a thing as a mental health act and that people can be detained against their will given you've had some very unpleasant experiences. Could you explain that a bit more about why you think it's a good idea?
1: Because I think that there are times in people's lives when they do become very unwell that they can't see any hope and they they don't I didn't know particularly what was going on around me at one point and if I would have been left to my own devices I might have died at the age of 22 and because I was sectioned although it was horrific and horrible and I wouldn't wish it on anyone it saved my life and I think sometimes horrible things are necessary if they've got a good outcome? It
0: it, it may well have saved your life, and you've spoken very eloquently about that, but it also remains the case that things deteriorated really badly, way, way worse than they should ever have got because the services haven't been very good for long periods of time and you haven't been followed up, you haven't been given the right kind of help and also I think that you had too many different kinds of therapists You've not really had one person that you could develop a relationship with who stayed and looked after you over a long period. What's your assessment of the standard of care you've received?
1: I think before I was sectioned, it was a very poor standard of care. Um, I felt quite fobbed off by people, like um, people just didn't want to take things seriously, and people would say it was because. Like, when I moved, I was told, oh, it's because you've just moved house, despite all the years of illness. It could be quite hard to get listened to. Um, and the care you do receive, there's a long waiting lists, and then you're not seen often enough, but one appointment a, m- a month just isn't enough for somebody who's severely unwell. So, it was, yeah, it was appalling. And if that wouldn't have happened, if I would have got the care, like, that I'm receiving now, maybe I wouldn't have got to the point where I needed to be sectioned because it would have been being treated and there would have been that hope that things can improve.
0: So let's talk about the various things that went wrong. One thing I think that went wrong was that you didn't receive a proper expert opinion uh, that was continuous, that for many years you saw the same person who was an expert and, and looked after you and you developed a long term relationship. One of the things that's gone wrong, in my opinion, with the services, it's very fragmented and people are divided into teams and you don't see the same person more than once a lot of the time. But what do you think?
1: Yeah, definitely it was, um, you know, you do a few therapy sessions with one person and then, that would end and then you'd be under a care coordinator and the care coordinator would change or be off sick and funding changed. And, yeah, it was a lot of, like you say, fragmented care and nothing was continuous. So I didn't have trust in the system. I didn't have trust in the people that I was seeing. And I didn't want to tell them the hardest things to say because nothing was stable with it.
0: What about the expertise of the people that you saw? Did you have confidence in their expertise or do you think you were seeing some people who really weren't trained in adequate enough depth uh, to understand the, the complicated problems that
1: you had? Well I've seen many people and of all those people I've only seen three professionals that are trained in eating disorders So a lot of the time I did feel like they didn't understand what I was going through and they would be asking me questions about what it was like to have my illness and what I thought would help, which isn't particularly helpful when you feel like you're teaching the professional about your illness because they weren't trained in eating disorders.
0: Another thing that I think people in your situation find very irritating is having to go over your history again and again all the time with new people or even people who know you a little bit, but they don't know really basic facts. Um, What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, definitely. It just feels like you're always in that assessment process, and it's a bit like, oh, here we go again. And you feel like you're always talking about your life story, and there might be difficult parts in that. But nobody's actually helping you with any of it. You're just repeatedly telling people it.
0: What was your lowest moment, do you think, in all of this?
1: Um, I think it was probably last year, um, when I spent an entire, like the first night I spent in the psychiatric ward before I was sectioned, um, I spent the entire night awake with um, a plastic bag, like trying to take my life. and. Making sure that nobody would catch me.
0: How were you trying to take your life with a plastic bag?
1: Um, I was, I was trying to suffocate myself. Um, but it, it, didn't work. Um, but yeah, I just didn't, I didn't think anything could get better. I didn't think being in the hospital would help. I just felt horrific.
0: How come you were trying to do that on a ward? How, how, you, you, how come you weren't being supervised on a psychiatric ward?
1: Um, well, I was supposed to be on, like, level two, which is 15-minute checks. so they walk in and look at you every 15 minutes. Um, but at night, it didn't happen that night, so I think someone came in, like, three or four times through the whole night. Um, but my bed was around the corner from the door, so they couldn't see my bed. Um, so, yeah, nobody could see what I was doing.
0: So it was entirely possible. You could have, you could have killed yourself, actually, at that moment.
1: Yeah, I could have.
0: What do you think about that?
1: I think that's quite scary. I think that um, my family would have assumed that being on on the ward that I was in safe hands. And it, it just wasn't safe that night.
0: So, in a way, it's sheer chance that you're alive today, really.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: It's not really through active intervention from the mental health services.
1: No, um, they obviously they played their part, but um, not all of the time. So,
0: what was the moment of the best help that you've had throughout this period?
1: Um, I think it was so just after I'd been sectioned and it was, I think it was all on the same day so I was on level three observations which is where you have someone with you all the time and um, they got all these professionals in to see me from all around the local area so I saw like the eating disorder specialists and the dietitians and the psychiatrists and they came up with a plan that was solid and everybody in it knew exactly what they were doing and they were trained in the illnesses and I finally felt like I was in safe hands, like I trusted the people around me that they were going to help me get better.
0: So that that kind of happened quite soon after your lowest moment in a way, is that right?
1: Yeah, that's true, yeah.
0: So almost the lowest moment led to that, that the services quite, kind of finally tweet that something was seriously wrong. Yeah. But it just took them a long time for something really bad to happen before they tweet.
1: It did, and I think that's quite dangerous because I'm sure that there's probably many other people who got to that low point and they weren't as lucky as me and they didn't survive it.
0: So um, you've you've begun to um, talk out in this very helpful way about what happened to you and you've connected with Mind, the mental health charity. Tell us a bit about that, about your relationship with Mind and, and what you're doing in speaking out about what happened to you.
1: Um. Yeah well I I like, I'm really passionate about writing, so at first I was trying to write about my experiences and kind of overcome stigma and get rid of the stereotypes, and I got in contact with Mind about speaking out about my experience of the night in the cell, and I did that through my writing, I sent them an email, and that led on to my first piece of spoken media work, so I was speaking on the news and it's just carried on. I think I find um, it's quite good to speak out about things because the more you speak out the more other people feel able to talk and things change like people don't know the problems and unless you don't speak about it nobody's gonna know what's wrong with the services and what's wrong with mental health care.
0: And also your view of the future now? you become much more optimistic about the future.
1: Yeah definitely I think um, it sounds really cliché but I think everything kind of happens for a reason. Um, and all the stuff that happened to me, I'm trying to use it in a positive way now to improve lives for other people and I like, find enjoyment in my writing and in blogging and I, yeah, I feel much more positive about life and much more up for the future now.
0: Tell us a bit more about eating and your relationship with food now.
1: It's still very difficult. Um, I wouldn't describe myself as recovered at all. I massively struggle with eating. But it doesn't rule my life. So I'm living a life alongside it and doing things alongside it. And food is just a small part of that.
0: There may be people listening to this who felt, similarly to you, full of despair at the obliquest moments when you were full of despair. You're much more optimistic now. Uh, there may be people listening to this who are going through the kind of rough times you went through in the past. What would you say to them?
1: I think it's important just to hold on because it does get better and it might take one year, it might take ten years, but it will it will get better and you will want to live your life again. And I never thought that I would love my life, I never thought that that was possible, but now I can say that I love everything in my life and I will not change a thing.
0: Claire Greaves, thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you.